everybody, it's David Creek. I want to thank you for listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. We're coming to you from the Philadelphia area. And you can check out our website at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out concerning it, because their evil has come up before me. Well, as a name, Nineveh really doesn't mean that much to us. Nineveh means about as much to us as Damascus or Shechem or Mesopotamia does. It's not a name that makes our ears to tingle or that causes our blood to boil very much. And yet for the ancient Israelites, just hearing Nineveh was the most noxious, loathsome sound imaginable. Well, in the book of Jonah, God has a purpose of Abrahamic proportions. He has a mission of mosaic magnitude. We all remember God's shocking words to Abraham, go, leave your nation, leave your people, leave everything that you've ever known, and go to a land, I'm not even going to say where it is, just just go, and he goes. Later on, he says, I want you to take that son, Isaac, that you and your your wife, Sarah, waited all of these years and decades for. I want you to go on a journey, go up on a mountain, lay him on an altar and sacrifice him like an animal. And as shocking as that is, Abraham goes and he does it. And now to Jonah, the prophet, God says, arise and go to Nineveh. In other words, go to your absolute worst enemies, the people who you hate more than anybody else, and cry out concerning them. Cry out on their behalf in order that perhaps they may turn from their ways. And yet unlike Abraham and Moses for Jonah, Jonah doesn't go. For Jonah, nothing could be more impossible for him to be a messenger of repentance in a place like Nineveh. Nothing could be more impossible for him to give his hated enemies even a chance to turn from from their ways and to turn their hearts towards the God of heaven. And so the theme early on in the book of Jonah is, God, I thought we knew you, and yet we were mistaken. You, I mean, even the notion of you wanting me to go to Nineveh in this way, uh, listen, that is as far as we are going to go. So it's been nice knowing you, Jehovah. (laughs) I mean, normally God sends his prophets to the people of Israel. They walked around naked for three years. They married prostitutes. They would take objects and smash them in people's faces as as object lessons and as a prophetic critique of the conduct of the people. 
And yet on this occasion, God is wanting Jonah to venture deep into enemy territory. He's sending him out into the abyss of the Gentile world and to go into the heartland of the Assyrian Empire. You see, he doesn't want to go because Israel and Assyria were the most staunchest of political foes. They were the most fiercest of rivals. And yet the greatest denominator of Jonah's seething hatred of the Assyrians, though, was fueled out of fear. Because everybody knew it in this time that the Assyrian Empire was known for their savagery. They were notorious for their brutality. They were the Al-Qaeda of the ancient world. They were what we would classify now as a terrorist organization. Assyria and Nineveh were so sadistic, they were so ruthless, that they would have scared the Third Reich. Their national pastime wasn't baseball. Their national pastime was cruelty, bloodshed, and creative savagery. As the writings and as the excavations, as the gates of the city proudly and loudly had depicted, When Nineveh would capture somebody, it became a sport. As the writings indicate, they would impale bodies on stakes. They would chop off hands, feet, noses, ears, genitalia, whatever they could sever from a body. As another writing shows, they even severed people's heads on occasion and wore them as necklaces. They would set men, women, children on fire and shriek in uncontrollable merriment as they watched them die and to burn to death before their eyes. One of the kings of Nineveh is said to have lined the walls of the city with the skin, with the human skin of the captives who they had butchered. Another Assyrian king boasts of spilling so much blood that His horses were splashing around in it like a river. I mean, the entire book of Nahum, a couple of books over, chapter 3, I mean, the whole entire book of Nahum is devoted to yet another prophet saying that, that your time and that the day of reckoning is coming for all of your multitude of atrocities. And so we read a couple of books over to the right in the book of Nahum, chapter 3, God says through his prophet there, Woe to the bloody city, so full of lies and plunder. There is no end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, the galloping horse and the bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain. Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They are stumbling over the bodies. And then the punctuation of the book in verse 19 of chapter 3 is God saying that there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who will hear the news about you are going to clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. I mean, can we see at least a little bit why Jonah was so reluctant to go to a place 
like this? Can we understand his trepidation for not wanting to to stand before a people like this? While he tries to run as far away from Nineveh as he possibly can, Nineveh geography indicates is modern-day Iraq. Jonah hears, go to Iraq, and so he says, okay, and he goes to northern Spain. Well, he tries to go to northern Spain, at least. And with good reason. The Israelites saw Nineveh and Assyria as you and I conjure hell. God, in his ears, is saying, I want you to go to hell and to speak concerning them. (laughs) Now, I know that the fish that swallows Jonah gets all of the publicity in this book. But we need to understand this is is not a bedtime story about a guy and a whale, is it? Rather, this is a monument of the grace of God for humanity. Because as evil and as savage and as ruthless as Nineveh is, God has not given up on even wicked Assyria. Just as, praise God, he did not give up on wicked David once upon a time. Nineveh, even Nineveh, Assyria, even Assyria, is awash with the merciful grace of God. His mercies are new every morning in Jerusalem They're new every morning in Assyria just as much. And if the eye of God is upon the sparrow and upon the pigeons in Central Park, then how much more is his compassionate eye fixated upon the souls of humankind? One of the most moving things in all the scripture is that God cares deeply for the souls of Assyria. God is is very anxious, he's very concerned for even the most darkest crevices of the earth. And yet the twist in the book of Jonah is this. Jonah, as all of the prophets did, he thinks that this is just a summons for his audience to repent. But we see very quickly in this book that the book of Jonah is not just exclusively a summons for the people of Assyria to repent. This is equally as much a summons for Jonah and the preacher himself to repent. And that there is so much that he himself needs to repent of as well. And if there's anything that you and I have come to know about repentance at this juncture, it is this. It's that repentance hurts. Repentance is something that does not come very easily or without a fight from us. Repentance is something that burns our comfort zones to the ground. Well, after the storm that comes upon Jonah as he tries to go to Spain and to Tarshish, and after the fish has spit Jonah out after three days and three nights, Jonah gets a do-over. We come to chapter 3 of Jonah, and God is like, okay, Jonah, let's try this again, and let's see what happens this time. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Praise God that God is a God of second chances. 
And in my case, fourth chances and fifth chances and 9,000, 9 trillion chances. Verse 2, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out concerning it the message that I will tell you. And so Jonah gets a mole again, and this time he goes. Last time it was a three-day journey in the belly of a fish. This time it is a three-day journey to the very place that he feared more than any other. A place where he would undoubtedly be seen as, as a foreigner, as an intruder, maybe even as an invader. And yet his hatred of them has not changed one bit. Maybe it's even intensifying as he goes. And yet, to Jonah's credit, he goes nonetheless. And when he gets there, it, it was the shortest sermon that has ever been preached. His sermon was eight words long in my translation. You would have loved this guy. And yet his message to them in the latter part of verse 4, he, he cries out to them, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty days, and Nineveh is to be overthrown. Now, throughout Hebraic history, the, the number 40 is very important. We see 40 come up many different times, don't we? We see Noah and his family spending how many days in the ark? Forty days and forty nights. The Israelites wander into the wilderness after being liberated from Egyptian slavery. They spend 40 years wandering and and circling in the wilderness. Jesus is baptized. He spends 40 days and 40 nights in that very same wilderness, fasting and being tempted by the evil one. And now Jonah, addressing Nineveh, pronounces 40 days until the city is to be overthrown for their countless atrocities. Jonah doesn't even want to give them 40 seconds. And yet God is giving them all the time that they need in order to turn their hearts to Him. Have you ever tried to wonder what it was like being in Jonah's shoes as he journeys towards Nineveh? I mean, a despised foreigner Hebrew enemy of theirs having the audacity to march into their capital and to tell them what to do. Remember who these people are. This is Al-Qaeda. I mean, surely they would have rushed upon Jonah. Surely they would have impaled him on a stake and, and all of that nightmarish stuff that I mentioned a moment ago. And yet instead, one of the most unbelievable things happens in Scripture. Where in verse 4, Jonah again says, Yet forty days, Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5, here is their response to this message. Verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. Every time I read that, it's like, Huh? What? And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, 
covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh, that by the decree of the king and by his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his fierce anger so that we may not perish. I mean, I've been reading this my whole entire life. And I still can't wrap, wrap my mind around this. The whole entire city of Nineveh. Imagine if the whole entire city of Westchester showed up this morning. This is Nineveh we're talking about. I mean, the fish that Jonah spent three days and three nights in is not the most miraculous thing in this book. This is the most incredible thing that happens. Where we find seven of the most unbelievable words ever formulated in a sentence And the people of Nineveh believed God. Where from the very greatest of them to the least, from the very richest to the very poorest, they began calling on the name of the Lord, calling for a fast. The king of Nineveh himself does something that was unfitting for, for a king of his stature. Where he comes down from his throne removes his royal garments, and he adorns himself along with all of the other people in the nation in the entire of ancient repentance, where he, as well as the whole nation, dresses themselves in sackcloth. Well, sackcloth was this rough, Apache garment that was very scratchy and irritating to the skin. And wearing sackcloth, the discomfort was what it was all about. It was very intentional and deliberate. You would wear sackcloth while coping with the death of a loved one. If there was a tragedy nearby, you would wear it as well. If you wanted to grieve and to mourn over sins, this is what you would wear. You would spend long durations of time not just wearing sackcloth, but as it also says, sitting in a pile of ash. And the significance of this is that your life feels as if death has already laid hold of you. Your your whole entire world has just fallen apart, and so you are returning to the ash from where you came from. That is what the idea was. And yet notice that the king is so serious about his repentance, and the nation is so serious about their repentance. And what the king says is, we are so serious, God, about this, that we're not going to eat a crumb of food. We're not going to taste a droplet of water until we have poured every last ounce of our hearts before you. God, we have changed our minds. We're not going to live this way any longer. We renounce all of this bloodshed. We renounce all of this violence. It will no longer be a part of who we are as a people. 
But what really grabs me in all of this and what moves me so graphically is that they also express to God that we are so serious about repentance that even our animals are going to be dressed in sackcloth and sitting in ash. Of all the nations, of all the peoples and generations that will ever live upon the face of this earth, repentance is best exemplified in Nineveh, where even the mules wear sackcloth and bow themselves low in the posture of repentance before the God of heaven. Every living creature in Nineveh is taking on the posture of humility, of humiliation for their sins before God. I've got to understand and you've got to understand this is not nonchalant, half-hearted repentance. This is not, I'm sorry I got my hands caught in the cookie jar repentance. But rather, this is soul-wrenching, heart-ravaging, violent, graphic, transcendent repentance. This is the woman pouring the perfume on Jesus' head and, and washing his feet with her hair and drying it with her hair. This is Zacchaeus announcing that he was making fourfold restitution to anybody who he may have scammed. This is the 3,000 plus on the great day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, who are pierced to the heart learning that they had murdered and massacred the Messiah and interrupted the very first gospel sermon ever preached saying, oh my God, what must we do to be saved? Repentance burns our comfort zones to the ground. Repentance hurts. But when we undergo this beautiful thing called repentance. We experience every single solitary time that nothing has a more explosive impact on the heart of God than one who is repenting before him in these kind of ways. Where we read in verse 10 of chapter 3 that when God saw what they did and noticed that, this is one of the greatest um, definitions of repentance that we have in Scripture. This is what repentance is. Repentance, notice, when God saw. Repentance is something that God sees with his own eyes. When God saw what they did, repentance is something that we actually do. You see, repentance, yes, repentance regrets. Repentance feels sorry. Repentance has heartache. But more than anything else, repentance does. Repentance is action. Repentance is, is unrecognizable transformation and conduct and character in a person's life. Repentance is a covenant that is most eloquently expressed in our hands and our feet rather than our words. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would, past tense, that he would do to them. And he did not do it as a result of that. 
Well, this is how Nineveh responds to the message of God's prophet. And yet, this is what is even more amazing than Nineveh repenting. Strangely, this is seldom the conduct of those who have the most access to God. Of those raised with religious silver spoons and who can quote book, chapter, and verse all of their lives. Of all people, once again, of all people, of all places, of all generations, we would have expected first century Palestine to have repented in this kind of way, you know? We would have expected the nation that brought us Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Elijah, and David. We would have expected those who had the temple, the scriptures, the Ten Commandments, the Ark of the Covenant, the Twelve Stones out of the creek bed of the Jordan River. We would have expected the nation who once upon a time God set free in in the Red Sea, who he fed with with manna out of the, the, the sky, who he guided by a fire by night and a cloud by day, we would have expected that nation to have been the ones repenting like that. But instead, here is what we read in Matthew chapter 12. As a group of scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders of the time, are demanding a sign from Jesus. In other words, Jesus, we need you to prove that you really are the Messiah. And this comes after Jesus has healed the multitudes before their eyes. This comes after Jesus has walked on water and turned it into wine, raised even the dead from their graves. This is after Jesus has astounded the multitudes with with a new teaching that had heavenly authority. Jesus, we need to see evidence that you are the Messiah. So he says, there's going to be no sign given to you besides the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And there, of course, he's speaking about his burial and his resurrection. But he goes on to say this in Matthew 12, 41. He tells these religious Jewish leaders that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation. Nineveh and Assyria is going to arise with your generation, he says. And they're going to condemn you guys. Because after all, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something far greater than Jonah is standing here before you. Of all people and of all places that we find in the scriptures, it is the bloodthirsty Gentile pagan Ninevites who most graphically exemplify the essence of repentance. Even their donkeys and dogs and camels and mules are putting the rabbis, the elders, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees to an open shame. Because from the moment that Jesus walked this earth, announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it became abundantly, overflowingly clear 
that the only way that we will ever receive that kingdom of which he spoke of, the only way that we will ever inhabit the kingdom of heaven, is surrender, is repentance with a heart full of godly sorrow, is drawing near to the living God for a brand new heart and for a brand new mind that operates as his does. And yet so oftentimes throughout the New Testament we find religious people, people in the church, not having this kind of heart. Who see repentance with godly sorrow as a foreign thing. I think about James as he says that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. How he says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says to them, cleanse your hands, O sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. Now James isn't saying that he wants them to be miserable 24-7. He's not saying that at all. But but what he is saying is that if you've never cried your, your heart out over your own sin, if you've never stood at the foot of the cross if you've never eaten the bread and drank the cup and, and saw things in your heart that you implored God, God, I, I, I don't want to live this way anymore. He says, it's about time that you had a good cry and that you repented and that you humbled yourselves before the Lord. I would say that Nineveh did all of that, did they not? They humbled themselves, even their own king, for crying out loud. All the other kings would have been looking on this guy as if he's gone off his rocker. Guy's nuts. Humbles himself. He and Nineveh is is wretched and they mourn and they weep for perhaps 40 days. A symbolic 40 days, perhaps. But every person and every animal in Nineveh has violently taken on the posture of repentance before God. And that brings us to the irony of this book. That's not entirely true. Because there is one person in Nineveh who has yet to repent. And of all people, it is the Hebrew prophet, it is the preacher Jonah himself. Selah. Jonah refuses to repent of his hatred of the Assyrians. And Jonah, it closes with him sulking in his rage and of his hatred toward these people. Refusing to entertain a positive and a lovely thought of them. And so he begins imploring God, you know what God, just just end my life and take me out right now. Because after all, Jonah would, would rather die than to call on the same Lord as his hated rivals and to share God with them. Well, at last, we close in Jonah chapter 4 and verse 11 this morning. 
God asked his angry, sulking prophet, And should not I also pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's where the book ends. That's where the curtain drops, where you turn the page expecting more, but that's, that's where the book of Jonah ends. Anybody who reads it initially thinks, wait, what? Did they leave a couple chapters? I mean, did Jonah ever make room in his heart for these people? We never know. We never know how Jonah ended. You know, all of this rage, if it was ever resolved or not. But that is actually a very powerful device. It's, it's a lot like when the book of Acts ends in Acts 28. We get to the end of Acts 28 and it's like, oh, I get it now. We are the 29th chapter of Acts. We are the rest of the story now. We have the torch in our hands now. And the answer to the question that God poses to Jonah is now to be answered by us. And by whoever dares read this book, the question is no longer to be answered by Jonah. Now the question is, are we going to let God conquer and transcend all of this darkness that we are still clinging onto in our hearts? So as we close this morning, God, He desires to recreate every human heart in order to operate and to love the way that He does. And yet the only way that that can ever even begin to happen within us, God has to take His scalpel and to go to work in our hearts. And in order for that to happen, we, we have to have a Ninevite kind of heart. And so is there hatred in our hearts this morning for someone? Is there lust in our souls this morning? Is there envy or an unforgiving spirit? What, whatever it happens to be. Last week our invitation was to worship like a foreigner. This morning, God's invitation to us is to repent like those foreigners in Nineveh and to remember the animals. The sparrows help us not to worry and the mules in Nineveh show us how to repent.